if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you're, you're not a member of the Church of Captain Moroni of Latter-day Saints. You're not, you're not a member of the Church of Tiancum or Nephi slaying Laban of mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints. You're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He is the North Star. He is the gold standard. And he embodies complete and total nonviolence from the moment of his birth and even before all the way to the cross and beyond. Patrick Mason is this episode of the Cultural Hall. Historian, author, great guy. Very, very, like if I had a historical church friend, like an intellectual, like a smart church friend, if I had friends in general, I think Patrick might be one of them. But if I had like smart friends, I feel like I could hang out and eat really good food and just chat about everything with Patrick. Now, luckily for you guys, neither of us had food while we did this episode. But we do get to know Patrick quite a bit, get to know where he comes from, and uh, also talk about some of his upcoming projects. It's so great. I I just, I'm going to stop talking so I can play this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and honored to have here Patrick Q. Mason. I'll find out what the Q stands for in just a second, but if you don't know who that is, He holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. He has written or edited several books. I will highlight a few of them. Mormonism and Violence, The Battles of Zion, What is Mormonism, Out of Obscurity, Mormonism Since 1945, Directions for Mormon Studies in the 21st Century, and The Mormon Menace, Violence and Anti-Mormonism in the Postbellum South. I don't even know what that means. Patrick, thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with the hardest pressing question I will ask you all day. The Q stands for what? The Q is for Quinn. It was my grandmother's maiden name. Okay, okay. And do the Quins go back to pioneer ancestry? Tell me a little bit about the Quins. No, the Quin- actually, the Quins show up in that uh, last book that you mentioned, which was my first book, The Mormon Menace. So uh, my grandmother's family, they settled in Mississippi. Uh, They're good Southerners. And uh, so they were the first converts to the church. This was the late 19th century, like 1880s, 1890s. Okay. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's the Mississippi branch of the family. Interesting. Uh, also, I want to pick up the Leonard uh, Arrington Chair at Utah State University. I know that that's a position, but my heart of hearts, and please let this be accurate, there is an actual chair that has like a bronze embossed Leonard Arrington chair. Am I am I too hopeful? You're too hopeful. <clears throat> but but I'll tell you what, I have a picture of Leonard Arrington right there. So yeah. Leonard looks over my shoulder. Yeah. And I previously had the Howard Hunter chair of Mormon studies at Claremont Graduate University. And that actually came with a real chair that was engraved with Howard Hunter's name. Oh, that's so, awesome. So what? That so, was, so, so I would sit in it just to feel like, I don't know, important or something. Presidential, prophetic, if you will. But definitely not that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to my friends up at Utah State. We'll see if we can't get you a, a Leonard right. Arrington chair. It's, it's the one missing piece. It's, it's, it's been a great move, but I'm, I'm still waiting for the furniture to arrive. So. What does that even mean to be a chair? What, I, what, what is that? Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's a nice honor within the academy. So it can mean a couple of things. So there's like department chairs. That's just like the head of a department. Right. In this case, an endowed chair, it's, it's a professorship where – private money usually has been given to endow 
uh, or support a professorship in a particular area. And, and then it's usually named after somebody. So it is seen as a kind of prestigious uh, type of professorship. And the idea is that, so this is specifically for Mormon history and culture, it means that there will always be this professorship here at Utah State University dedicated to Mormon history and culture. So so I'll toot a horn where you maybe won't, like to have held a couple of chairs means that you're really good at what you do. Um, or at least I can fake people out. <laughs> you downplay it. I knew you would, of course. <laughs> and then with that being Mormon studies, obviously we have the big push within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which we will in the rest of this time say Mormon because we don't have enough megabytes and bandwidth to say that every time. But has there been any sort of push uh, to change that as far as the study goes? Or is it just sort of adopted because, well, it was Mormon or it is Mormon or more widely known would be Mormon? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and there's there's a as you might suspect, there's uh, some divided opinion on this. I mean, as scholars, we want to be respectful of the people we study, right? Mm -hmm. So, and and this is just a general principle. So, if people want to be known as African Americans, we refer to them as African Americans, right? So, we generally want to refer to people as they want to be known. But it's it's tricky in this case. So, on the one hand, I I do when I'm talking about the contemporary church, I would never use the term Mormon Church or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I would always refer to the church. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but historically that's not always the case. I mean, like the Book of Mormon wasn't published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It didn't exist yet, yeah. right? And so I can't use that term and be historically accurate to talk about Joseph Smith's earliest visions and publications until 1838, until there is a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then it's a big, huge movement movement that goes beyond the Salt Lake City-based church. You know, you have the Community of Christ, you have fundamentalist groups and others. So you need some kind of umbrella term. Mormonism is not the best but it's, it's sort of the best we've got. And, and so most of us have decided, you know, we'll stick for it as, as a kind of generic category. It's never been a perfect term to begin with, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's kind of the best we've got. So most of us are sticking with it. I do know at the University of Utah, they changed their program to Latter-day Saint studies. Hmm. Um, but even there, there was, I think, a little bit of heartburn over that. So uh, I, th I think for now, at least, you know, Mormon is here to stay in the academy and for journalists, as you say, part of it's just word count. Yeah. Um, but but while recognizing when we're talking about the contemporary institution, I want to be respectful of the institution's wishes. Are, are there other lesser known, maybe odd names that we would call it? So not Latter-day Saint, not Mormon, but are there other ones? Uh, possibly like restoration okay. uh, or restoration studies people use. And I actually find that useful. I, I just finished a book manuscript on Mormonism and peace where uh, where we used the, the, the my co-author and I used the word restoration a lot because we actually found that to be uh, not only a, an acceptable term uh, to the church, but also theologically useful. So um, but but that's speaking historically, that's not a perfect term either, because there were lots of other restorationist groups, you know, people who are trying to restore Christianity, mm -hmm. who have nothing to do with Joseph Smith and, and this movement. Uh, so there's like Alexander Campbell's followers and, and, and people like that. So the nomenclature problem, it's, it's always a problem. It, and even without uh, religious cultures, right? I mean, nomenclature in any sort of study, it's always yeah. people want to have those things. What, what, make, what makes a guy uh, from, you know, with roots in the South want to live in Utah and study Mormonism? What, what's the, what's, what is inside <laughs> your head, Patrick? 
well, uh, do you have a couch? And uh, well, I have this. <laughs> it, see, if people are Patreon subscribers of the Cultural Hall, they're able to see this video. I have this comfy new chair from the Costco that I acquired. So I'll lean back. Tell me. Okay, so, that, that that's great. Right. Tell, tell me why you would do this. Um, uh, we can talk about my mother. Uh, but uh, no, actually, I I was born and raised in Utah. So so the Mississippi branch. They eventually made their way to Idaho. My mom is from Idaho. My dad's uh, family was in Utah. So but I was born and raised in in Sandy. Born and raised in the church. Good Mormon boy. Went to BYU. And I've always been interested in history. I, I was one of those super weird nerdy kids who like the day I walked into college, I declared myself a history major and knew <laughs> I wanted to be a history professor. I'd never met a history professor in my life. Uh -huh. So don't tell me why I knew that that was my life calling, but I knew I wanted to be a history professor. The, the Mormon history thing, that sort of came later because I, uh, I went to Notre Dame for graduate school to do American religious history. I did a lot with like African-American history and evangelicals and Catholics and other stuff. The Mormon stuff sort of came in at the end. And then a, a series of, in my case, very fortunate events led me to, to have these positions. So I've, I've spent you know, most of my career now focusing on, on Mormon history, even though I, had, I studied a lot of stuff you know, through graduate school. Was it the difference between the Catholic Church and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that you sort of encountered at Notre Dame that made you go, oh, hey, and pivot towards that way? Or what was that What was that defining moment that you went, not African-American history, not American early history, Mormonism, that's my jam. It, it was actually more serendipitous or accidental than that. I mean, when, I, when it came time for me to write my dissertation, um, I'm really interested in peace and violence issues. Uh, I've, which I've, not I've noticed all of your books are yeah. like massacres. Which, which and is strange because like, I, I live a totally boring life. I was raised in the suburbs. I have no experience with violent trauma uh, or anything like this. But, but actually it was, but I've been interested in that for a long time. And so I pursued that in, in graduate school. And so I was writing the dissertation. I wanted to do a dissertation on violence and religion and, and American history. So I was going to focus on Catholics and Jews and African-Americans, sort of kind of obvious, you know, kind of usual suspects. And I sort of threw in Mormons at the end. And this was all in the late 19th century South. I, I threw in Mormons at the end. I didn't think there was going to be much of a story there. Actually, I, I knew some of it from my own family history, from the Quins yeah. that we talked about. Uh, so I threw it in there. And it turns out once I got into the archives that that's where the story was. There were more episodes of violence against Mormons in the late 19th century South than against Catholics and Jews combined. Hmm. Um, obviously, the African-American story is a whole different. That's an entirely different scale and scope uh, and so forth. But in, in, in terms of violence against white religious minorities, there was more against Mormons than, than others. So that became the, the genesis of the first book. So it was really just by following these kinds of my research interests and going into the archives and finding what was there, discovering things that other people that hadn't found before uh, or, or studied very much, then that took me into Mormonism. I write the first book. I get my job at Claremont. And, and again, so I've spent the past 10, 12 years doing this. So you, so you write that first book, and I'm sure that there are countless stories about this violence against uh, members of the church in the South. Give us one. Sort of tease me into why I should read that first book you wrote. So one story is 1884. Uh, there's these uh, missionaries having a fair degree of success in, in Northwest Tennessee. And this is like really rural stuff. Actually, missionaries in the South were sort of scared of going into urban areas. Hmm. Um, they, they were sort of intimidated. I, I think they, because um, a lot of them came from rural backgrounds. A lot of them were farmers and so forth. I think they thought they might be outclassed um, in, in the cities. So they stayed in rural areas where actually, ironically, that they, they would have been safer in the cities uh, mm. in the late 19th century South. There was more violence in rural areas. So anyway, but anyway, they were 
these this set of missionaries were having terrific success in northwestern Tennessee. And this one missionary in particular, John Gibbs, and anytime they had a lot of success, they also sparked a lot of opposition. Sure. And so uh, one day in, in 1884, they, they'd gathered at uh, this uh, convert's home to have uh, Sunday services. And out of the woods, you know, there's a few dozen people who have gathered around for, for services. Uh, the missionaries are preparing their sermon. I mean, people are still kind of gathering uh, for, for the service. And all of a sudden, out of the woods uh, burst this mob of uh, 10 or 12, 12 guys. I forget exactly how many right now. But they come out with literally guns blazing. Uh, and and start shooting at this assembled uh, gathering. And the, the, the Mormons, they're not pacifists, and so they pick up their guns too, um, and they start shooting back. And when, when the dust settles, when all the firing is done, the leader of the mob, who was a Methodist uh, preacher actually, so he, he's killed, but then four Mormons are killed, two, uh, two converts, two of the sons who, uh, who, who lived there on the farm where they had gathered, uh, and then two missionaries, hmm. uh, including John Gibbs, the, the, the leader uh, of, of the missionaries there. And so then there's this great story afterwards of B.H. Roberts, who was a general authority of the church later on. But at this time, he was just supervising the missionaries there in the Southern States Mission. He goes in under, and, and some people have seen pictures of him. He, he dressed up like a hobo because the, the mob sort of knew what he looked like. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he dressed up like a hobo. He was very proud of his costume. And so he actually went and got his picture taken. A, <laughs> <laughs> so so on, the, on his autobiography, that's actually the cover picture. But uh, he goes in to, to rescue the bodies of the two missionaries to ship them back to Utah. And then there's this big funeral in the tabernacle and, and, and so forth. But this it's known as the Mormon Massacre, the Tennessee Massacre of 1884. It's just a, just a, a, a great story. So let me ask you this. I know that a lot of the persecution towards members of the church, like in Nauvoo, was because the sheer number, right, that they had started to gather and, and people were intimidated that they would have governmental power and all of these things. That probably wasn't the case in Tennessee. So what were these what were these 12 to 14 guys so scared of? Well, that's exactly right, because these are tiny little communities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, even this one, this very successful, the Northwest Tennessee Conference. I mean, we're talking about a few dozen people, maybe a few hundred if you take in the whole region. Right. But uh, but most of these episodes, it was, it was against lone missionaries or against a little outpost of converts. The big fear, and most of this violence occurs in the 1870s and especially 1880s, the big fear is polygamy. Hmm. And that's what separates the violence in the, in the late 19th century versus the early 19th century, whether it be Missouri or Illinois. There's other issues there. You know, it's politics, as, as, as you said. But in the late 19th century, again, they are not a political threat in the South. It's a moral threat. And, and Southerners are really, and, and, and some people have argued, oh, it, all, all this mob violence is, it's because they opposed Mormon doctrine. They didn't like Mormon teachings. I don't agree with that. I mean, I actually think that they're, that yeah, Americans can be bigots and they can be intolerant and so forth. But for the most part, even in the late 19th century South, you didn't kill somebody just because they had funny ideas. Hmm. Um, it was when those funny ideas took the form of practice. Ah. And that's what Southerners were afraid of. They, they weren't killing people. They weren't killing Mormons because of the King Follett discourse. They weren't killing people because they believed in the Book of Mormon. They were killing missionaries because they thought they were there to steal away their daughters right. or even their wives and ship them back to Utah to be part of polygamous harems. So it was practice, not not belief, that that uh, that that inspired all this violence. So 
several of your other books are also about violence. Is it just because you were like, well, this is obviously spurs from this and this, and and it just sort of unravels from there? Or why you love violence so much, Patrick? <laughs> Uh, I'm actually a pacifist. Yeah, yeah uh, you you seem it. I I mean, I don't want to make you mad by by saying anything because who knows? I don't know you well enough, so I don't. I could reach through the screen <laughs> any right? any moment uh, and just come at me. But right. but yeah, what's why so fascinated by it? So I don't know. You know, I mean, I I think for every scholar or anybody, I, I mean, it's why are you interested in what you're interested in, right? Yeah. And. So partly, I mean, I, I got into this and while I was at Notre Dame, I got a master's degree in peace studies. So I'm interested in this in a, in a kind of global scale. I just mm -hmm. finished teaching a course on religion, violence and peace here, here at Utah State. So I'm, so I'm interested in this in a much bigger way than just Mormonism. Right. I'm mm -hmm. interested in why is it that humans kill each other? Right. Why, yeah. why do we do these horrible things? And especially because I care about religion. How is it that we use religion to justify these things? But also, how is religion a resource for peace building? And so, so I'm interested in the big question of violence and injustice and inequality, uh, but because you know the little corner of the garden that I tend happens to be Mormon Mormonism, you know, the, then I I bring those big huge questions down into this particular tradition that I study. And and the fact of the matter is that not very many people have studied it. I mean, a lot of people, of course, have looked at the Missouri violence, sure, right? sure, and, but all the rest of it. You know, other than like the Mountain Meadows massacre or, or, or you know, a very small number of cases, people just haven't done much with it. So so I'm basically I, I just found this thread and I keep pulling on it. Hmm. So, as you said, I've, I've published a book on Mormonism and violence. It's a short little book that is kind of an overview of, of how violence is, has played out in the tradition, not just not anti-Mormon violence, but actually Mormons doing violence mm -hmm. and the violence in Mormon scriptures and so forth. And then and then I've just finished a, a big book on uh, which is really more theological with a co-author, David Pulsifer, on arguing for a nonviolent strand of Mormon theology, because ultimately I'm a, a believer in and follower of Jesus. Uh, and that's actually where my core commitments come from, right. uh, because I actually see nonviolence at the, the core of the Christian gospel. Interesting. Let's take a break real quick. When we come back in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I want to talk about that most recent project and, and maybe get to know a little bit more about Patrick Quinn Mason. We'll do that back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. LDSbookstore.com also has great things just in time for the holiday season. Like what? Like things like a sister missionary Christmas tree ornament or an elder missionary Christmas tree ornament made of wood, lasered and engraved. You can get their name, like the one I'm looking at, Elder Brandon Young. Well, wait a minute. That's my good friend over at LDS Bookstore. You can get those great ornaments. Now, what else might you get? Well, they have clothing there as well. Did you know that? clothing at LDS Bookstore. It really should just be LDS Store, but it's LDSBookstore.com. Let me not get confusing for any of you guys. Uh, you can find great missionary things. If you've got uh, a missionary that's going to be serving in the next little while, you can get like tote bags, the shoulder bags, the backpack, the messenger bag, the sling bag, a toiletry bag. I don't think you put a toilet in there. I think that's things like your toothbrush and stuff. Maybe a scripture tote, anything that you could want for that missionary, or maybe someone's getting baptized. Great gifts. Christmas or other special monumental life events, go to LDSbookstore.com. 
Ho ho ho, this is Danta Claus from PC Laptops in Salt Lake City. Would you like to save huge, massive money this holiday season? Don't throw out that old computer. We can transform that old, slow, or broken down desktop or laptop into fluffy, high-speed goodness, no matter what brand it is. Just bring your desktop or laptop computer in for a free diagnostic. The diagnostic is 100% free, and there's no obligation. We're so great at making computers faster that if we can't fix or upgrade your desktop or laptop, we'll buy it from you. Have I lost my mind? Want to trade in your old computer? We have brand new lifetime warranty desktop computers from $7.99 and we'll buy your old computer. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC laptops, desktop, or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Call us at 1-877-596-7283 for details or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com, where we love you. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall with Patrick Quinn Mason, uh, you'll notice that we've made a couple references that you could actually see this interview that we're doing. That is only possible if you are a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. Remember, that gets you to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group that only Patreon patrons are a part of. And it's just people who love the Cultural Hall, just like you do. Uh, consider becoming a Patreon saint. It's patreon.com slash thecultural Patrick, uh, I sort of have been formulating this question back and forth in my mind, thinking, oh, you know, it, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons were sort of a docile people, right? You talk about how we would take up arms if someone take up arms against us. And I'm thinking about like the violence that may be kind of ingrained in our culture. And I was like, no, that's not true. And then I was like, no, the war in heaven, like where this all began is very violent. What other examples, or maybe extrapolate on that example, do we have this violence sort of intertwined within our church culture? Yeah, so I'd actually argue that the Council in Heaven is not violent. I, I think we've given it... Uh, but but we call of, it a war in we heaven. We call it the war in heaven. I actually think that's a misnomer. Hmm. Uh, and in this new book, we we that, that's the first chapter, actually, because uh, the, the textual sources, the actual scriptural sources, uh, the, there's no evidence there's any violence. And how can you do violence against spirits anyway? Like, what do you do? Like, stab them? Like, and it's like Casper, <laughs> like, goes through them or something? Like, I don't even know what that looks like. It's just a, it's just an object lesson in futility as you try and stab <laughs> spirits. <laughs> that's, that's exactly. <laughs> Which is the entire point of violence, right? Yeah, it's all exactly. Violence. So, um, actually, I, th I think it's it's a, a terrific example of the opposite of the way that power uh, only works uh, through through persuasion and non coercion, uh, because because fundamentally we are all, uh, according to Mormon theology, we're all these eternal spirits or intelligences that have agency, and the only way that that you can get any spirit or intelligence to do anything is through persuasion, not mm -hmm. through coercion. Mm -hmm. And that's the brilliance of, of Joseph Smith's uh, uh, statement in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he says, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained except through persuasion, love, kindness, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just that you shouldn't do that, but you can't do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can use violence and coercion to, to, to get people to do what you want for the short term. Governments can do it even for, for years or decades, but, but eventually that the human spirit uh, craves freedom and uh, craves independence. And so ultimately, the only authority that you can have over other human intelligences is through persuasion. But, uh, you know, to, to answer, <laughs> there, there's my little soapbox. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but historically, you know, the, the earliest Mormons were pacifists uh, from 1830 till uh, and, until the, the, the first Jackson County persecutions or, or until the summer of 1833. 
historians of the church talk about how, you know, the mobbings that they received, the various kinds of things, they would always turn the other cheek. They didn't fight back. They, they'd instilled in them the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. It's only after the, the it's in the fall of 1833, after the Jackson County persecutions, where they, they picked up arms to defend themselves. I think it's an entirely justifiable and entirely human response, but it is a departure from the, from the earlier behavior. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the 18, we, we see it throughout the 1830s, 1838 is kind of the low point here in terms of the Mormon-Missouri war. Uh, that eventually leads to them being expelled from Missouri. I actually think the revelations that Joseph Smith had received were very clear in terms of telling them not to do that, Mm -hmm. that if they picked up arms, they would be expelled uh, from their homes and from their lands. That's exactly what happened. Uh, In in Nauvoo, of course, they formed the Nauvoo Legion. Again, you could say it's justifiable. It's out of self-defense. Joseph Smith never actually uses the Nauvoo Legion. It's more bark than bite, but that's a pretty big bark. Yeah. because uh, as I understand, yeah. and just to reiterate of how much of a bark it is, that that was bigger than the like the army that represented Illinois. Right. It was. Yeah. The, right. I mean, it's it's enormous. Right. Yeah. And, and it was common for for local cities or counties to have militias. That mm-hmm. that's the way that it was organized in the 19th century. But the Navi Legion was enormous uh, by contemporary standards. Yeah. The, for, for me, the real low point for, for Mormonism and violence comes in the 1850s, because that's where we have unjustifiable violence by, by any score. The Mountain Meadows Massacre, September 11th, 1857, it's the single worst day in Mormon history. But it, it's, it's not alone. There are lots of episodes throughout the 1850s of violence against non-Mormons, against dissenters or apostates. Uh, against Native Americans, we've, we really have not come to grips with the fact that Zion was established in the mountains, mm-hmm. that the Mormons came and established their communities in Utah and in the Great Basin by driving out Native Americans. Mm-hmm. We, we remember Brigham Young's sort of later policy of it's cheaper to feed them than to fight them in, in, in reference to, to the Native Americans. But in the first few years of settlements, especially in the first five years, Mormons were not that different from other white settlers in terms of pursuing essentially a policy of extermination. It, it, it started in Utah Valley and, and then continued in, in other places throughout Utah and the Great Basin. So, so that's, not, that's a part of the history we don't like to talk about very often. We like to talk about the, the friendly relationships bet, you know, between Mormons and the Lamanites. But that was, th- those relationships really only become, become friendly once the Lamanites are removed. You know, once they're just an idea. Right. I And I can't remember. I wish I could remember the battle and you would probably know. But we had uh, a Shoshone gentleman on the show, Darren Perry. Who, oh, the Bear River Massacre. The Bear River yeah. Massacre. God. Yeah. And see, I mean, I should be able to know that within a member of the church. But we did an hour about the Bear River Massacre that I would I would contend 98 percent of uh, members of the church have no idea that we did that. Yeah, and, and, and the, that massacre in particular, it was done by U.S. Army troops, not by Mormons, but Mormons called for it. They celebrated it yep. afterwards. The, the residents of Cache Valley, where I live right now, to, to read some of those accounts after the massacre, it, they were not hand-wringing. They were not saying, oh, man, isn't it terrible what the Army just did? They invited the Army to do it, and mm-hmm. then they celebrated it afterwards. Yeah, I appreciate the clarification on that, too. I didn't want to make it yeah. sound like, but it was. It was a thing where we're like, thank you, U.S. Army. You took care of the... The, the plague of the land and all. It's just treacherous. So, so, so we could have it, right? So all of us who live here in Utah is just like throughout the, the, the rest of the continent. We're here because other people were dispossessed and they were done so through violence. It's interesting to note where we are in today, contemporary, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, and even just the world. There is still this violence that exists 
not only against the church, but against churches or religion in general. Are there similarities from a couple hundred years ago to what we see today? Is it all the same thing, a different hate, different day? Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, I mean, I, I, I think there, as a historian, I always want to look at the particularities, right? I mean, and the, this idea of history repeats itself. Well, not quite. I mean, Mark Twain supposedly said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> and that that's probably closer to, to the truth. And because people are actually quite creative in finding different ways to be horrible to, to one another. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but I actually do think violence is the original sin of humanity. And it's, uh, you know, you go back to Cain, that's, that's really the original sin, getting kicked out of the garden, especially according, according to Mormon theology, getting kicked out of the garden is not really a problem. It's part of the plan. Uh, violence is not part of the plan. Yeah. What Cain does to Abel, that's really humanity's original sin. And so we've been living with it ever since. And that's why I think that Latter-day Saints, especially when it comes to religious persecution, the persecution of religious minorities, which is a very real thing yeah. around the world. Uh, it is a very serious problem around the world. People want to politicize religious freedom and say it's just some kind of conservative cause and so forth. I get that within con within domestic U.S. politics. But if you look globally, the persecution of religious minorities is a very serious issue. There, there's people suffering all over the world. And um, and so it's something the Latter-day Saints should be especially attuned to because this is part of our history. And so it seems to me that if we care about issues in the 21st century, this should be one of the issues that we are outspoken about in terms of trying to end religious persecution for anybody, including for atheists, you know, and, um, and, and even religions that we don't like. Um, be because that was us not too long ago. It is fascinating to uh, to see, like what you say with Mark Twain, that it doesn't repeat itself, but it, it certainly does rhyme that that these persecutions that existed then they exist now they exist here in utah they exist you know in in the continent of africa in south america all of these places in, these, yeah in china yep. uh, you know they're the worst abusers right now when you pivot to this latest project of peace is it a prescription for peace do we yeah do so so most of my work is historical right and and so i'm looking backwards and and i'm not you know trying to to tell people what to think or what to do but this this current project um that we hope will be published soon it's it is more theological and also you know i'm i'm, I'm not here to tell anybody what to think or what to do but but what we do in this book is really it's a work of scriptural theology so we dive deep into especially restoration scripture book of mormon doctrine and covenants pearl of great price and what we find there is is a message of as, as i said earlier that nonviolence is absolutely at the core of the gospel of jesus christ uh that was true in the new testament it's true in restoration scripture as well and so anything that we do uh, that departs from that we have to justify that we have to we have to make an argument why that the default is nonviolence. if you're a christian uh the default is nonviolence. anything else uh, you have to recognize you're, you're stepping away from from the norm from the ideal in the contemporaries of the church, are there apostles or prophets? A, a talk doesn't come to mind that talks about being peaceable, that talks about bringing peace to the earth. There was a terrific talk that, uh, well, well, they talk about it all the time in terms of spiritual peace. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where can I turn for peace, of course. Right, exactly. That the world can't bring you peace, but the way that you get peace is, is by keeping the commandments and living the gospel. So they actually talk about peace all the time. But if we think about it on a more kind of socio-political level, yeah. uh, there were a lot of talks in the early 2000s around the war in Iraq and, and the invasion of Afghanistan. 
and President Hinckley famously came out and said, well, it's my personal opinion that this is probably a, a kind of justifiable thing to do. He cited the example of Captain Moroni. But right after that, there was a terrific talk by uh, then Elder Nelson, now President Nelson. I, I forget the talk, uh, the, the title of the talk off the top of my head. It's something, something like peace building or peacemaking or, or you know, we're pure, we are supposed to be peacemakers. But he talks about in there, the whole talk is about peace. And he talks about the, the, the children of Abraham, those who, who are part of the Abrahamic covenant, they have a special calling and responsibility to be peacemakers uh, in this world. It was a very strong talk about peacemaking being core to, to our identity. I love it. Let's take another break real quick. When we come back, I want to pick up some pieces of your life uh, to where you are now. We'll do that coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, we always love to hear from you. If you want to send us an email, it's contact at theculturalhall.com. Or if you want to follow us on any of the social medias, we invite you to engage with us there. We're on uh, Pinterest, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and obviously Twitter as well. It's always at the Cultural Hall. And you can hit us up there. And if you would like to just go above and beyond, you find yourself with more time on your hands than you know what to do with. Wherever you are getting this episode of the Cultural Hall, we would invite you to leave a review. Had a lot of people do that recently, and we really appreciate it. It lets people know, just like before you buy a pair of pants, you look at the reviews. Before you're going to spend an hour of your time, you're going to look at the reviews for the Cultural Hall. And they'll be like, oh, this is worth my time. I'll check it out. Patrick, has it been worth your time so far? Absolutely. Every minute. (laughs) Even if you're lying, I appreciate it. So let's go back and pick up some pieces. You went to BYU. Being a Utah kid and going to BYU, was that just sort of always the plan? No, it, it was not, actually. I, I was a pretty good student, and, and so I was uh, admitted to lots of universities. I wanted to go back east. I wanted to go to Washington, D.C. or of, something. I was of course you did. I know. Um, but uh, no, I actually, um, I, I don't talk about this very, very often, but uh, one of the, the very few unmistakable moments in my life where I felt like God hit me upside the head and told me to do something uh, was to go to BYU. Really? Uh, And I don't think God tells everybody that, uh, but, uh, and I don't know why he told me that, but it it, it really is one of the very small handful of times when, when I feel like God directed me to do something very specific. So, So that's why I ended up at BYU. So you can't, you can't give me that little bit. And if you don't want to share, I understand, but how did he do that? I, I still remember. I mean, I'll never forget. I, w- I was uh, down for a campus visit. And again, I was looking at all these other places. BYU was literally at the bottom of my list of like the six or seven schools I was looking at. I applied only because I was a good Utah Mormon it's, boy. Yeah, that's what you do. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, I got a scholarship there and stuff. So, so that helped. But I had scholarships other places, too. And I, I know exactly where I was walking on the street in Provo uh, as part of this campus visit just by myself. And it just came to me like a lightning bolt out of, out of heaven, just out of nowhere, hmm. right? And I just knew unmistakably, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to BYU. That's awesome. 
And I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. I know you said you don't share that very often. Uh, I, I think it's awesome when people can have those experiences. Like you say, I don't think that's frequent and I don't know that everyone gets it. But man, I love it when you don't have to question a thing, right? God's like, do that. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that right. sounds good. Right. I wish, in some ways, I wish it happened more, right? Most yeah. of my life, I'm just kind of fumbling around in the dark. So that was, that was a very rare, I mean, I can count on like, on, on one hand, the, the, the number of times that's happened to me in my life. Uh, you mentioned you served a mission. Did you say Spain? Is that what I remember? Seattle. Seattle. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I knew it started with an S, though. What yeah. was it? What was well, it like up in the Pacific Northwest? I love it up there. I mean, that's that's God's country up there. It's yeah. it's, uh, it's it's pretty pretty great. Um, I, I, had a, I had a great mission. I had, I had a terrific experience. I, I even got to the point where where at the end of my mission, I liked tracting. Hmm. Um, not <laughs> because I, I I sort of got to the point especially in the second half of my, of my mission, where I realized I, I just really like talking to people about religion. Yeah. Right. And if they don't want to talk about it, fine, we'll move on to the next door. But if they do great. Right. And if they care about what I think about religion, terrific, but I also care about what they think about religion. So I, I had a great time. I, you know, I had some companions that were better than others. You know, I had struggles and challenges. It was, it was a great time of, of personal growth for me. Um, it's not the kind of thing I think about all the time. I don't, I, I'm not one of those guys who thinks about my mission every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, but it was definitely formative. Uh, and then, uh, family, what's your, what's your family situation like? So uh, I'm married. Uh, so I, I graduated from BYU single. Hey, uh, wait, wait, so I, what did you do? What did you do uh, before you came to this earth that that happened? I, I'm just an abject failure. Um, <laughs> and I was really bad at dating. Uh, not great with, with girls. Maybe it was the, the fact that I wanted to be a history professor. Maybe that had something yeah. to do with it. You're like, hey, I, I study history and every single lady's eyes just gloss over. They're like, exactly. next. I mean, we're usually like the coolest guy in the room. But, yeah, um, of course. For, for whatever reason, they were not seeing that. Um, no, it's actually funny when I got admitted to, to graduate school, when I uh, got this acceptance letter from Notre Dame, I called my mom. I was all excited. I told her the news and literally the first words out of her mouth were, how are you going to meet a good Mormon girl at Notre Dame? Not congratulations, <laughs> not good for you, not I'm proud of you. It's like your your eternal soul is is. But I actually did. I actually met a a girl who went to Notre Dame a Catholic, and then she uh, became Mormon while she was a student there. I met her at church. I had nothing to do with her conversion, uh, but she uh, converted to the church. It's it's one of the few undergraduates. Uh, it, it'd be like going to BYU and converting to Catholicism. Oh right? wow! Yeah, um, yeah. So that, I mean, that's a great story in and of itself. I, I, I won't tell her story, but uh, it was funny. We were having dinner a few few years later with a Catholic priest that, that we'd gotten to know pretty well and told told him the story about her converting. And uh, he just started laughing. He's like, oh, we got a billion. We can afford to lose a few. <laughs> <laughs> that's a priest with a good sense of humor. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, she... so, so we got married. We've got four kids now. And, and uh, yeah, life is good. So interesting with that, uh, kids and peace. I mean, if I can kind of go off into a, another sort of tangent as far as that goes, what is the gospel, uh, whether it be the, the Latter-day Prophets or the Book of Mormon, how does that instruct and inform you being a parent and, and that subject of peace? Oh, I wish I was better. I mean, you know, I, I thought I was like a really even keeled, you know, like peaceful, like the, my way of being in the yeah, world. Yeah. I'm just, really it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I had kids and <laughs> I mean, the, the, they force you, 
they force you to conf confront like the worst parts of the world and the worst parts about yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I lose my temper with them all the time. I mean, I, I, I yell at them. I, I mean, I, I don't do anything illegal or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or anything like that, but you know, but I, um, you know, I, they, they challenge me partly because they're just so close. Right. And I care so much about them. I want them to be good people. I want right. them to, I want them to stop hitting their brothers. Right. And, 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 you know, they actually joke about me being a pacifist, right? I mean, it's, it's just a big joke yeah. uh, to, to them. Like, we love playing board games and a lot of board games, you know, involve, you know, we love playing Risk and, and other things like that. They always joke about me being a pacifist. And so, and, and they just take full advantage of it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, ki kids are great because they, they certainly will teach you everything that you are good at. And you, and you yeah. can take a lot of great pride in that. But they're also really good in in very strongly pointing out every literal singular failure that you have as a person, either because they observe it and poke it at you or because they also have it and you go, oh no, I've instilled that in another generation. Now the sins of the fathers, it's a real thing. Ah, oh my gosh. So with, with this project and with others, and as we sort of look now, as we look now forward, it, it's interesting well, you were talking about the violence around the turn of the 19th century and some similarities to what we see, you know, with sh shootings in church today and stuff like that. It is an odd, I got to be careful how I word this, but it is an odd comfort to know that we've always been violent. I think I get swept up in thinking we are so divided right now. We are so violent right now in a way that we never have been before. When, when maybe that isn't the case, or would you contend that that is the case? today no I, I this is one of the the benefits of being a historian uh it actually having that kind of perspective and knowing that as messed up as we are now people have always been messed up right and yeah. they're, they're messed up in different ways and, and it does wax and wane I, I think there are periods of of greater conflict and greater tranquility relatively speaking but there are lots of periods just in american history let alone global history where people have been really messed up and have I mean, we had a civil war, right? Yeah. It killed millions of people, yeah. right? I, I don't think we're there yet. I, and I hope and pray seriously that, that, that we don't get anywhere close to that. But uh, yeah, we, and, and that's why I'm, I'm a big believer in the kind of structures and institutions of society that, that help forestall those kinds of conflict. Because I do think conflict and violence are in, in the human heart. Um, and one of the things that we can do is build inst strong institutions, whether it be governmental institutions, but also religious institutions and educational institutions that, that actually try to, 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 to hedge a, a, a against our worst tendencies. I have had the thought a couple of times while we've been discussing, and, I, and I'm just going to go ahead and bring it out and see what you have to say about this. Um, there is sort of a faction uh, of, of violent members of the church today. When we think of of the Bundys in uh, in Nevada, uh, there's a certain uh, quadrant of the upper you know upper part of Idaho, the eastern part of Washington, that that we see some of that. If people, if you have not listened to, there's a great podcast called Bundyville from Oregon Public Broadcasting, couple season long. Leah Satilli, I think, is her name, unless that's a celebrity, and I just said somebody else's name does this great couple season episode and 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 it is a group of people who feel justified in what they're doing because of the scriptures because of the the contemporary church of jesus christ of latter-day saints scriptures have you looked into any of that have you followed any of that yeah i follow it uh and 
and it's um yeah it's 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 hard for me to watch because because especially you know people who are part of my tribe and mm -hmm. i i can't judge anybody it's it's not my place but but what i would say is if you're a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints you're, you're not a member of the church of captain moroni of latter-day saints you're not you're not a member of the church of Tiancum or nephi slaying laban of mm -hmm. latter-day saints you're a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints he is the north star he is the gold standard and he embodies complete and total nonviolence from the moment of his birth and even before all the way to the cross and beyond mm. and so um so again are there examples of of sort of righteous warriors in the scriptures yes but um who is your ultimate exemplar uh, if you're a christian it should be jesus and i think jesus is rather unflinching in in his nonviolence. so uh, again it's it's not my place to judge other people but, sure. but i hope that they're grappling with that and and who they really worship and who they follow. Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion and hopefully a future episode of the Cultural Hall will we'll be able to talk to to that host and and we've had uh we had Ammon Bundy on uh, about 5 or 6 years ago right before the uh or maybe it was right it would have been right after the big standoff down in Nevada and and things had sort of returned to normal but before the the big standoff up in Oregon. So, uh, pretty fascinating fascinating times that we live in. Yeah. Certain, yep. Certainly an opportunity uh, for uh, an entire chapter to be written with the election and, and, and what that could mean for our nation. Let me ask you, just because I'm curious, the time of the pandemic, what, what did you really take out of that? Well, you know, it's, uh, I mean, for, it, I think it shows how fragile not only human life is, but, but also human society. This, this you know, the, the economy, all these kinds of things that we think are, are just unassailable and inevitable uh, are not. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Mother Nature has other ideas. Sometimes uh, the planet Earth uh, has other ideas. And, and humans, we really are a fragile species. And so much of what we take for granted is actually contingent. Um, and so, so then I think that the big question is how do we respond? Yeah. And I, I've been inspired, I mean, of course, frustrated by all the acts of stupidity uh, and, and selfishness, but, but more inspired by the acts of, of really true goodness and self-sacrifice and, and heroism and, and the way that people did put their lives on hold for weeks, for months uh, in order to protect others. That's yeah. actually, I think, a deeply Christian thing to say, look, I may not get sick. My family may not get sick. Even if we do, we probably won't die. But guess what? Somebody else might. And so, so all the kinds of social distancing and so forth that we did, it's, it's about taking accountability of our actions and the way that we are in the world, the kind of ripple effect that each human life has. So I hope that, you know, as we come out of it, I hope we do come out of it, right? We'll see what the coming months and, and years bring. I don't think we're, we're out of the woods, but, but I hope it gives us a moment to kind of pause and reflect on what it means to be human mm -hmm. and, and what it means to be good to one another and even our unintended, the, the unintended consequences of even small actions. You know, it's been fascinating to me, you know, as a, as a member of the church and having the opportunity to, you know, minister to other individuals, not only a, a, a feeling like an inner calling of needing to minister more, right? Like, I'm yeah. not sick. I'm... I'm not rolling in money, but I could help someone if they were really in need. And that compulsion from inside to go and do that. But also the thing that I have just found completely fascinating is people's willingness and receptiveness to be served 
you know, whether they were have been humbled or whatever the thing has been, to for them to have and take advantage of that experience is something that I haven't seen. And I think of like one ministering family that I have in particular who, you know, would go by nothing, would text them nothing, would call them nothing. You know, first week of the pandemic, I was like, you know what? I just want them to know, even if they never answer, that they care. You know, I sent him a message and then he sends me this great message back that's like, you know what? I have no intention of ever going to church again, but thank you so much for letting me know that you care about me. And I truly feel like, you know, you would be there if I really needed something. And and to me, I think that's a far greater win than, hey, be in this building with us that we can't actually even go to anymore. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's how, how do we forge those human connections, those human bonds? Yeah. If people are only going to read one of your books, which book should we read? Well, the one that's most popular for church members is Planted, uh, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. It's where I kind of wrestle with issues of faith crisis and all those kinds of things. So that's probably the one that, that most people will be interested in. But, uh, but Mormonism and violence is really short. It's uh-huh. easy to get through. <laughs> What's your... there's a lot of, there, if, if, if you like blood and, and, and guts and stuff, uh, that there's a lot of good stories in there. Your wife always catches you reading the, 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 you know, the war chapters of Alma. You're, she's like, you know, there are, other, there are other chapters, Patrick. There are other chapters of this book. Um, I spend more time with 4th Nephi. Do you, have a, do you have a favorite book that you've written? Oh, it's usually the one that I'm currently working on. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, my, I'm, I'm, my Y chromosome is so strong. I'm not saying that I'm like a super manly man, uh-huh. but like <laughs> I, I am excellent at compartmentalization. So mm-hmm. it's like I do something, then I'm done, and I move on to the next thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm proud of all the stuff I've done in the past. But I'm, I, uh, so, so uh, I'm, I'm actually writing a little book right now on the restoration. What does the restoration mean? to us in the 21st century. Cool. Uh, so kind of breathing new life into that term. So that's something that I'm kind of jazzed about uh, right now. And you mentioned the book on peace. It hasn't been picked up yet, or we don't know a publishing date? or It's, when... it's, uh, it's been sent out to a publisher, so it's being reviewed okay. right now. So, so we're crossing our fingers that it'll be out in the next few months or a year or something like that. And the restoration book, any idea where we might be able to or when we might be able yeah, to that'll see that? Yeah, that? that's going to be published by the Faith Matters Foundation. So they've uh, started a new, or they're starting a new book series. This will be one of the first books in that series. Uh, so they've got a great website. So you can go there and, and I'm sure they'll be putting out the word about this new book series. It's brand new. It's, it's going to be starting later this year. Uh, so in, in 2020. So, so that's kind of exciting. Cool. I just think that's cool. I just, you know, I just declare cool and then I let it be silent for a minute because I just think it's awesome. We ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall three questions. I will ask those of you now. The first question is, is do you have a calling currently? And if so, what is it? I do. I am the Ward Sunday School president. Oh, Very lofty title (laughs) with enormous responsibility and power. Yes. Wielding that, hey, can you teach a lesson on Sunday power like ever before? That's exactly. awesome. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? <laughs> a theologian in chief. No, oh. um, uh, no, I, 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 I've taught gospel doctrine a lot and I really enjoy that, that calling. Which, uh, so I, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway, which section of gospel doctrine would you like to pick or to teach the most? Uh, the New Testament. Okay. Really? I, I see. And I was going to say like doctrine and covenants, church history, but I, I'll give you that. No, I, I love church history, but I love Jesus even more. Yeah, <laughs> we may call it that. We may call this episode that. I love church history, but I love Jesus more. Final question: uh, We ask you to interpret however you would like, but that question is: What is your favorite part of your faith? 
Wow, what is my favorite part of my faith? You know, it's for for me, it's um, that's a great question, actually. It's it's having a sense of who I am and where I fit in the cosmos and in the world, and then the obligations that that gives me to to other people. Hmm. I like that. He is a, a chair among chairs. His name is Patrick Quinn Mason, our guest here on the Cultural Hall. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you are not healthy enough to listen to it this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen to it next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 